I have a lot on my mind this morning. I've had a lot that I've been thinking about over the last few days, actually over the last few years, but it's just really, some things have come to a head for me over the last few days. And one of those things is very simply that we are not called to seek the approval of man. And to emulate Jesus is not to seek the approval of people. It's not to seek the approval of our culture. It's not to seek the approval of our, of our friends or family. Not that we would intentionally do things to cause disapproval, but that's not what we're here for. And, and I think in the church, and I'm so thankful for our study through Acts, because I think in the church today, one of the biggest problems we have is the church is trying to seek the approval of the nation. And that's not what we're about. You all are aware this last week of the, of the public servant elected official in Kentucky who is now sitting in jail because she refused to sign a marriage license for two men, I think it was, in our country. Someone is sitting in jail in our country because she refused to violate her faith. Does that shock you? I guess in some ways it shouldn't, but I could not have imagined this 30 years ago. Not even close. That in America, this kind of thing would happen. And we're going to see it more and more. I'm not the prophet of doom, it's just the reality. And I want to say to you all that I think part of the reason that we've gotten here is because the church has for too long sought the approval of our culture. It's time to stop that. And we're not here to be contentious. You know, the point is not to try and fight the nation or fight our county or fight our towns or fight non-believers at all. As a matter of fact, it's to take the good news of the gospel to the non-believer. But if we're seeking the approval of people rather than the approval of God, we don't look any different than the rest of the world. We're not here to look like the world. Once we give our lives to Jesus, we step out of that. And now our strongest, greatest desire should be the pursuit of holiness. The approval of God. And what He says is right. And what He declares to be true. Whether I like it or not. As a small child growing up, my parents had me do all kinds of things I didn't want to do. Eat. Sleep. Get dressed out of my pajamas. I mean, these were things that to me was a violation of my personal rights. (laughs) But I did them. Because as a child, I I wanted, as all children do, I wanted the approval of my parents. And so I want to encourage you to think, as we go through the study this morning, to think about whose approval you're really after. Who you really hope thinks well of you. For me, I just want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. With that in mind, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen is preaching and he says... You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. And he had just done an entire sermon talking about what their fathers did. He continues, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, a phrase for Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth at Him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8. 
Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Father, would you bless this study this morning? Continue, Lord, as you have done so patiently to call us to yourself, to conform our hearts to yours, to transform us, Lord Jesus, by the renewing of the mind. Help us to think like you, to speak like You, to be like You, to emulate You, Lord Jesus, in everything we do. Overcome, Lord, the flesh in us that we may walk by the Spirit. And be a church of people who are truly, passionately seeking the approval of God rather than the approval of man. Teach us what it means to really be witnesses. And by Your Holy Spirit, bring the truth to our hearts this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I seek not a long life, but I seek a full life like you, Lord Jesus. I seek not a long life, but I seek a full life like you, Lord Jesus. He was just 20 years old when he penned that in his personal journal. Eight years later, in 1956, Jim Elliott was found dead at the hounds of the Alka Indians, who he went to bring the gospel to down in Ecuador. He died a martyr for the cause, not a victim, but a martyr. He died a young man full of depth and passion And the word of God, Jim Elliott. And he reminds me, and if you've ever read the story through Gates of Splendor, if you've ever studied or looked at the life of Jim Elliott, you would agree that he reminds us that a full life is not measured by quantity of years. It is measured by quality of faith. A full life is not about where you've been and what you've done. It's about where you are going and who you serve. A full life. Not a long life, perhaps. And some are blessed with a long life. The fact that I've crossed 50 years honestly surprises me. That I'm still here. That we're still here. But that I've been able to live this long. And yet, when I think about the years wasted. When I think about the fact that if I had just gotten to it earlier on. I could have had a full life by the age of 28 like Jim Elliott. Taking God a little longer for my life to be filled up. But a full life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6, Therefore, always being of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, right? Not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Well, this morning I want to look... At, a, at another life, a brief life, not really a brief life in terms of years. We don't know how old he was, but absolutely a life briefly mentioned, and that is the life of Stephen. Now Wednesday night, and if you weren't here Wednesday, I encourage you to go and listen online to the teaching. We went through the entire sermon in chapter 7, and it is breathtaking. It is stunning. It is not random. Stephen is answering Defending, if you will, prosecuting, probably is the better word, uh, those who had come at him and accused him of certain things. He responds beautifully, spiritually, biblically. He responds to what was being claimed against him throughout the whole chapter. Well, we studied through that. What we didn't do is really stop and think about Stephen himself. Stephen, the man, who he represents. A life briefly mentioned. The end of chapter 6, he's called to be a diakonos, to serve tables. Chapter 7, he's called out as a witness, and before the chapter is done, he's dead. And then we move on in in the story of the early church. 
And yet, who doesn't know the name Stephen, at least as connected to, in some way, shape, or form, martyrdom? For most Christians, anyway, most believers, if they've studied the Bible or been in church very long, you ask who's the first martyr, they'll say Stephen. We know about Stephen, but what do we know? A life briefly mentioned, and yet with great impact. Now, we've been studying through, as you know, the book of Acts, biblically defining the church, what the church is to look like, who the church is. It's not about steeples, it's about peoples. (laughs) It's not spires, it's spirits. It's completely unique in the world. A people born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, as we've said, an entirely new breed of people. A different kind of people. Or so the Scriptures describe. And I was thinking, and, and Ray is sitting in the back, so I may get this wrong. So check me on this, Ray. The church is somewhat like atomic particles making up the atom. We're all flying around in there. We're all little particles in this larger, more powerful thing. With Jesus as the strong nuclear glue that holds it all together. Does that work? I'll let it go. Thank you. (laughs) Stephen is just a particle. Stephen is just a tiny little aspect. He's just one of multitudes of witnesses across the centuries. One life, a brief life, again, in terms of his ministry. He waited tables, he preached one recorded sermon, and then he died falling asleep. Falling like a grain of wheat. As Jesus said in John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Stephen in his martyrdom bore much fruit. But before we get there, I, I want to share something else that I share midweek. And that is this. Stephen did not become a martyr in his death. He was already a martyr. A true martyr is already a martyr. The death only bore it out completely. As she Campbell Morgan said, those who have died for the truth were not made martyrs by their dying. They died because they were already martyrs. No hurricane of persecution ever creates martyrs. It simply reveals them. The death of Stephen simply is a a revelation, a revealing of the life of Stephen. A man who lived by faith. A witness. A martyros. Where we get the word martyr, it simply means one who testifies. A witness. We have applied it to death at the end of a life of witnessing, but a true martyr is simply one who testifies, and oh, did Stephen testify. What an amazing testimony he gives. He almost makes you wonder, especially as we began reading verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. I mean, he really takes it to them, and you wonder, Stephen, do you have a death wish? The things you say, the place you take this. He must have seen, had to have been aware of the looks on their faces as he preached. And the further into this remarkable sermon he gets, and the more he calls out the sins of the patriarchs, as well as the sins of the the current administration, talking about this one right here. As much as he calls that out and challenges them and says what it is, he had to have seen the furious red faces of the Jewish council. Had to have known these guys were getting ticked off. And had to also have been aware of what happened the last time they got ticked off with the crucifixion of Jesus. Spurgeon says he takes the sharp knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people, laying open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their souls. He could not have delivered that searching address without, with, with greater fearlessness had he been assured that they would thank him for the operation. The fact that his death was certain had no other effect upon him than to make him yet more zealous. 
didn't cause him to back down, Spurgeon says. It caused him to step up even more. Did Stephen have a death wish? No. He had a Jesus wish. Better, he had a simple desire to be Christ-like. And what an example of Christ-likeness, especially when you get rolling. You just can't stop. Concerned about no other person's opinion or approval but that of the Lord's. As Stephen would charge forward with the truth. Jesus did say, John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. We always apply that to Jesus. And truly, it is prophetic, Jesus speaking, of His own death. However, it's also prophetic of anyone who would be a martyr for the cause of Christ. Because He goes on to say, Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 25, He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant, my diakonos, will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. It was the Father's honor that Stephen was concerned about. Not the honor of the Sanhedrin. Not the honor of his own people. His own culture. It was the honor of God. Stephen is the servant. The diakonos. Jesus is the master. Only in the church, only in the church does the servant look so much like the master. Because the master is among us as one who serves. And so Stephen looks so much like Jesus in life, in death, and in legacy. And those are your three points this morning. In life, death, and legacy. Look at Stephen in life. Go back to chapter 6, verse 5. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. They had just called out for seven men of good reputation... That is good witness, good martyreo, full of the spirit and wisdom. This is verse 3. Who could be put in charge of the task of the widow's food distribution. And in verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Called to to wait tables, but moving on quite quickly to great signs and wonders among the people. Understand that when you volunteer to serve in the church, that's not the limit of your calling. It's the beginning. That's where it starts. The Father is looking for open and willing hearts who are saying, Hey, I'll serve. And I don't care if I'm laying hands on someone and healing them or moving around chairs. I'll do whatever the Lord wants me to do. Because I want Him to be honored. Whatever that looks like. Stephen steps up to wait tables and ends up performing great signs and wonders with power and grace. Full of the Spirit. Full of wisdom. The servant looks just like the Master. Just these brief descriptions we have about Stephen. You could use the same exact descriptions of Jesus. Whether your act of service is in prayer in the ministry of the Word, like with the apostles, or in serving tables as Stephen at first, you cannot help but take on the characteristics of the one you serve. Let me give you a warning with that. If you and the Bridge Fellowship determine to serve me, Pastor Rick, you're going to take on the characteristics of me. You don't want to do that. But if in this fellowship you are determined to serve the Lord Jesus in whatever you do, you will begin to look more and more like Jesus. We take on the characteristics of the one we serve. The pupil begins to look like the teacher, like the master. And that is the desire of a follower of Jesus. As with Peter and John back in Acts 4.13, they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Same here with Stephen. The reason he can be described as a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom and full of of grace and power is because he's a man who is with Jesus in prayer, 
in ministry, in the Word, in heart and desire, a man who has emulated Jesus in his life. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Absolutely characteristic of Jesus. They couldn't respond to him. They couldn't handle the truth (laughs) as he brought it out. They couldn't even respond. Man, do you remember Jesus and the legal team of We Got Nothing? Jesus speaking to the lawyers and the Pharisees in Luke chapter 14. Verse 3 said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. They kept silent. Why? Because they knew. They knew it was a trick question. They knew, however, they answered, they were going to end up either agreeing with Jesus, which they didn't want to do, or disagreeing with Jesus, which would put them at odds or at odds with the people, disfavor with the people. So they kept silent. And Jesus took hold of a man who had dropsy and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And I love this. They could make no reply to this. Stephen spoke, and they couldn't cope with what he had to say. They couldn't even respond. He was like, How do I answer this guy? He's spot on. I don't like him, but I can't answer him. And he looks so much like Jesus. Luke chapter 20 verse 40 said, They did not have courage to question Jesus any longer about anything. Because every time they brought a question to Jesus, he was so perfect in his response, so absolutely true, and the people were just giddy about it. They just shut him up. They couldn't cope. Matthew 22.46 No one was able to answer Jesus a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They couldn't cope with Stephen because they couldn't cope with Jesus. And Jesus had said, Luke 21.12 They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They'll deliver you to the synagogues and prisons bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Your martyreo. Your witness. So make up your minds, Jesus said. Listen closely. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Now, if he had said that to me as a high school kid, getting ready to study for a test, I would have said, Hallelujah. (laughs) Make up your mind, Rick, not to prepare for the test that you're going to be taking tomorrow. I'll take care of it. Cool. How many of you who who grew up believers didn't have the thought rush through your mind, why am I studying Jesus could come before my test tomorrow? Or even prayed for that, Lord, just please show up, because I'm not ready for this. (laughs) Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. They will not be able to cope with your answers. Now, i got to be honest, that's bugged me a little bit over the years. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand. What am I supposed to do? Go to bed at night, open my Bible, and put it over my forehead and hope it gets in by osmosis? (laughs) And I have heard the very lame excuse given by people, well, I don't need to go to Bible study because the Holy Spirit will give me what I need when I need it. Let me tell you something, the Holy Spirit's only going to use what you got. He will bring to mind what you have in your heart. Fill your heart with the Word of God and the Spirit's going to bring that stuff to mind right and left. And if you read through the sermon that that Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7, you hear word, 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 word. He takes them through Genesis. He takes them through Exodus. He takes them through Joshua, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Amos. Who's quoting Amos? Stephen does. Because this was a man of the Word. A man who had the Word. A man who was prepared. Yeah, but Jesus said don't prepare beforehand. Here's the issue. That word prepared, and you might want to just note this, it's from Luke chapter 21 verse 14. The Greek word prepared there is pronolatao. Pronolatao. It's translated prepare. What it means is to ponder with worry or care. In other words, to stress. 
to overthink, to worry about, to consider things constantly, to spin things out, spinning out scenarios in your mind, like a schoolgirl worried about whether she's going to be asked to an upcoming dance. Prom Latao. <laughs> Just a little mnemonic device there for you. Promolatao! Am I going to be asked? Am I going to be ready? Oh no, what am I going to say? What happens if they pull me up in front of the, in front of the council? What do I say then? Don't worry about that. Make up your mind not to worry about that thing. Not to be stressing, not to ponder with care ahead of time. Jesus was not saying, be unprepared. He was saying, don't overthink it. Don't be anxious about how to defend yourself, I've got your back. My Spirit will fill you and give you right utterance. So don't be worrying about it. The true martyr of Jesus is no victim. I know far too many Christians. Let me back up. I have talked to far too many Christians over the years who live the life of a victim rather than the life of a martyr. Constantly worried about being under attack. Constantly fearful about what's happening in the world and how it's going to affect us. Hey, if you're seeking the approval of God, what are you worried about? If you're in the Word of God, what are you concerned about? If you walk in the Spirit of God, what are you afraid of? Nothing. Nothing in this world. And again, I can tell you this for certain about Stephen. He knew his Bible. He knew the Word. And the Spirit then put it all together for him as he preaches the Word. I don't, I don't see this in Scripture. Stephen, awake nights, crafting a sermon for such a time as this. What I assume is Stephen awake nights in the Word because he can't get enough of it. And when the moment came, the Word was there. The Word was in, and the Spirit draws off of Genesis, Exodus, draws out of Joshua, draws from 2 Kings, draws from Amos of all places. Don't worry. Don't cower. Stay in the Word. Walk in the Spirit. Jesus has got you covered. And Stephen emulates this. Look down to verse 15 of chapter 6. And fixing their gaze on Him... All who were sitting in the council, that is the Sanhedrin, saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, now stop for a second. What does that mean? What is the, because Luke doesn't tell us. All Luke says is when they looked at him, they saw the face of an angel. What does the face of an angel look like? Well, I know what the face of a cherubim looks like. Four faces. That's a little scary. Stephen didn't suddenly have four faces, so that's not it. Some think his face was glowing, like Moses when he came down the mount. And they looked at him and there was something that was a little frightening, honestly. That the Spirit was so full in Stephen that there there was perhaps a glow about him. Others say, no, 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 the face of an angel. He was unperturbed. He was at such peace and at such calm, even while this onslaught of attack was coming at him, he was just so peaceful. As he stood before Sanhedrin, smiling, confident, collected and cool, face of an angel, perhaps. But I know this much about the face of an angel. The face of an angel looks at heavenly things. An angel's eyes have heavenly vision. And what we see here with Stephen is a man with the face of an angel because he is looking with heavenly vision. He's looking ahead to heavenly things. He is not looking on this life as lasting or eternal. Stephen here bears what we call Wednesday night, the hope of heaven, the glow of glory. And I'm convinced Jesus looked this way his entire life. Because for Jesus, it was never about this life. It was always about that life. Both for himself returning to his heavenly glory, but also to bring as many people as who would believe in him. It wasn't about this life. Heavenly vision, face of an angel. Psalm 10, verse 4 says, The wicked 
in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That will affect your face. It will. Unbelief will affect your countenance. You go from glow of glory in looking at heavenly things to a very dark pallor looking at earthly things. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1 says, A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I need that. I would much rather have a beaming face of glory than a stern face. A curmudgeonly face. A face of glory. A face of an angel. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, God said, Light shall shine out of darkness, and He's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's the hope of heaven. The glow of glory. Face of an angel. And this is how Stephen looked. And I believe he looked so much like Jesus. Stephen in life. That's all we get of Stephen's life. And then the sermon. Look now at Stephen in death. We come to the intense conclusion of an awesome teaching where he pulls out all the stops. And again, chapter 7, verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And so just like Jesus, the words of Stephen convict. After calling them at the beginning of this teaching, brothers and fathers, he now calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. In both heart and in ears. And these are eerily familiar Old Testament phrases. Phrases pulled, called right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, the phrase stiff-necked, also translated obstinate, is used more than 20 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Lord calling His people stiff-necked. What does stiff-necked mean? What does it look like? Exactly how it sounds. Obstinate. The neck is stiff. I'm not listening to you. Stephen says, this is what I'm looking at right now. Stiff-necked people. You're uncircumcised in heart. That is, your heart is fleshly. Your heart is is fatty. Your heart's in bad shape, man. Exodus 32.9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate, stiff-necked people. The Jewish people. Ah, uh-uh, but, but wait. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 26 says, All the nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. So you may think, well, Israel, they were stiff-necked. Welcome to the nations who are uncircumcised. Both apply to humanity across the board. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, the Lord says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. In a breathtaking exegesis, of the Jewish experience, Stephen calls out two things. He calls out their resistance to the Holy Spirit, culminating in their rejection of the righteous one. The resistance of the Holy Spirit, culminating in the rejection of the righteous one, the rejection of the Messiah. And here's the thing. They hadn't kept the law, as Stephen says, because the law was given to bring them to Christ. And had they kept the law, they would have come to Christ rather than crucifying Christ. So the very fact that they crucified Christ indicated they didn't keep the law. Because they didn't follow it through to its perfect, righteous conclusion, that is, Jesus. But again, it's not just the Jewish experience, it's the human experience. And this is exactly what happens, and let's apply this here, when the flesh resists the Holy Spirit, ultimately it rejects The righteous one. And that can happen inside and outside of the church. Outside of the church, when the flesh rejects the Holy Spirit, they're going to reject Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is at work trying to bring people to Christ. 
No one comes to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him to me. Well, that's the work of the Spirit. Perhaps you were one of those who sat in church at one point in your life going, I don't want this. Pushing back. Resisting the Spirit. Until you finally gave in. Until you finally said, Oh, why am I fighting what I know? Why am I fighting the place to which I'm being led here? Resisting the Holy Spirit. The non-believer does that and therefore rejects Jesus. Can't come to Jesus as long as that resistance is up. But in the church it happens as well. What do you mean, Rick? I mean resisting the Holy Spirit causes us to reject righteousness. Why do Christians look like the world? Why do Christians reject the righteousness of God for the approval of man? Because we resist the Holy Spirit. If we would not resist the Holy Spirit, if we would welcome the sanctification of the Spirit in our lives, we would soon be rejecting all unrighteousness and pursuing hard after the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. That would be our attraction. When we resist the Spirit, though, we reject the righteous one. And so I'll ask you, are you resisting Him right now? Well, I go to church, but I don't go forward. And I'm not saying that going forward is the measure of righteousness, by the way. But I'll go to church, but I'm not going to give in to the Spirit. I'll listen to that guy preach, but I'm not going to let this stuff in. Resisting. And by the way, it's not like resisting arrest, which I would suggest you not do. As if God would take you by force. And there are people, non-believers, who actually think that. They won't go to church because they're afraid if they sit there, they're going to be forced into belief. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. You start hearing the Word of God. You get in a place where you're around people who are worshiping, and it it is compelling. Absolutely compelling. Believers note that it is compelling to be in the presence of worship and the Word. Which is why I keep telling you, bring non-believers. Bring your friends who don't accept Jesus. Just say, hey, come to church with me. You don't have to do anything. You can sit in the back with, you know, right next to Debbie. <laughs> just pick it on your sister. You don't have to do a thing. Just, just come and be there. Why? Because it, it will start to break down their resistance. But it's, again, not like resisting arrest. What it's like really is resisting the gentle voice of your own salvation. Because when a person is in a place where they begin to hear the Word of God, Experience the worship of Jesus. You end up really having to think about, it's one or the other, either I'm going to accept this truth, or I'm going to reject it outright. Because the heart of resistance is just plain old rebellion. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at Him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, now this is Stephen in death, Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, we talked about this on Wednesday night. I'm not going to get into it this morning. But in this moment, Jesus is standing. And it's the only time in the New Testament we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. As he's welcoming Stephen. As he's cheering this young witness on. I say young, actually, we don't know. He could have been in his 50s. For all we know, he was just a man chosen. But Jesus is cheering him on. And we really got into that. So again, I encourage you to listen, especially to that last section about what happened with with Stephen and what it looked like. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But I want to deal with a different question here. Why, if the Jews had lost the right from Rome... 
to perform capital punishment, why were they able to stone Stephen? I mean, the whole reason why Jesus was crucified, a Roman execution, was because the, the Jewish people were now under Roman law and they had been stripped. The scepter had departed, if you will. They had been stripped of their right to capital punishment. They were not allowed to do it without Roman approval. So why then Jesus was crucified by Roman law, handed over from the Jews to the Romans, which by the way implicated both Jews and Gentiles in the death of Jesus. That happened for Jesus, but now Stephen is stoned to death. Why were they able to do that? Listen, a couple of things. First of all, if it didn't affect Rome personally, personally they would just look the other way. Oh, some some Jews over there in Judea killed one of their own, who cares? As long as it wasn't a Roman citizen, no big deal. We won't worry about that. And we will see throughout the book of Acts, oftentimes the Romans just look the other way because we're going to see Paul himself stoned numerous times. The stonings happen. doesn't matter. It's just a Jew, Rome doesn't care. But listen, this is not capital punishment. This is murder, plain and simple. What happened to Stephen was not a just capital punishment by Jewish law. It was a brutal murder. How do you know that? There was no trial. There was no evidence presented to merit execution. There wasn't at all. Stephen preaches a sermon. They they become infuriated and they kill him. No pronouncement of a sentence. No lawyers brought in to defend or argue different cases. No evidence presented to show that this man was worthy of death. Nothing. They were just mad as hornets. And they went after him. No evidence. No trial. There was no protocol for this stoning. What? Huh? What do you mean protocol? Listen. Quoting from the Mishnah. Regarding Jewish stoning, they had a very specific procedure. If a man is convicted by trial, he is afterward let out to be stoned. So first, you've got to be convicted in trial. Then, let out to be stoned. Ten cubits from the place of stoning, they must stop and allow the criminal to make confession. Why? So that they won't stone him? No. They allow him to make confession so that in the life to come, he can at least die having confessed his sin. He at least has a hope for a future. And this was carried out in Jewish stoning. It stopped. You have an opportunity to confess. Whether or not he confessed, then they would continue on. Four cubits from the place of stoning, the criminal is stripped. Then he's led out to what's called the drop. The drop. That is, the place of stoning had to be on a, a hill at least twice the height of the man. So 10 to 12 feet. And at that point... From there, the first witness pushes the criminal from behind so that he falls face downward this distance of 10 to 12 feet. If he dies from the fall, it is sufficient, according to Mishnah. No more stoning takes place at all. If he's pushed, dies, that's it. They would roll him over. If he is still alive, a second witness comes along, takes a huge stone, and pummels him on his heart. If that kills him, sufficient. If not, at that point, he is stoned by the whole congregation of Israel. Is that what we just read having taken place in Acts chapter 7? Listen to it again. They cried out with a loud voice, verse 57, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impulse. They had driven him out of the city, and they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen. Jewish law for stoning was harsh, but it was methodical. It was intentional. There is nothing methodical about the mad attack and murder of Stephen. This was a murder. But look at Stephen. Verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, 46, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Psalm 35, verse 4, reads, You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Jesus, in saying, into your hands I commit my spirit, was quoting Psalm 35. Speaking of the rescue and the deliverance of God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so here Stephen says the same thing, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In other words, into your hands I commit my spirit. Receive me, I'm coming home, Lord, in life or in death. The spirit that is committed to the hands of the Lord is the spirit at perfect peace. Verse 60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, Jesus said, Luke 23, 34, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How much in life as in death is Stephen like Jesus? Looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, talks like Jesus. Stephen looked like Jesus so much in his life, but never more than in his death. And it says, having said this, he fell asleep. Luke 23, 46, again, having said this, Jesus breathed his last John 19.30 when Jesus said it is finished he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and with some of you I shared what's interesting about that to me is he bowed his head his head didn't drop as he died the Greek word for bowed is klino and it means to lay back your head to rest it's the word that a Greek would use to describe the laying of a head into a pillow to go to sleep perfect peace Absolute calm. Jesus says it is finished. And he went to sleep. Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. As I shared midweek, it wasn't that a huge rock clunked him on the head and he toppled over and died. No, he just fell asleep. It wasn't the stoning that killed Stephen. It was Jesus receiving His Spirit, leading Him out of this life. Jesus did not die in the throes of agony. He didn't die writhing and gurgling and fighting for His last breath. He committed His Spirit to the Lord. He forgave His murderers and He bowed His head and laid it back as if into a pillow to sleep. And the same with Stephen. The same with Stephen. How alike the Lord was he in both life and in death and finally in legacy. Look at Stephen's legacy, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. That's not his legacy. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. That is Stephen's legacy. That his death caused this Explosion of persecution resulting in the scattering of the gospel. Ravaging. We're told that Saul was going about ravaging the church. It's illumineto in the Greek. It means to wreak havoc, to wreak destruction, ruin, injury upon the church. Saul was on this rampage to destroy the church once and for all. But what Saul and those behind him failed to recognize, failed to grasp, failed to understand, was what 2nd century Christian writer and apologist Tertullian once said. You've heard me say this before. The blood of the martyrs is seed. The blood of the martyrs is seed. And because... Stephen stood as a martyr, a witness, testifying to the truth, bringing them to the righteous one, Jesus. 
Because he called this out. Because he fell asleep. Because he was stoned to death. Because he died in his faith. Now the seed gets scattered for the first time in our story of Acts. It had been in Jerusalem. Only. Limited. The growth had been phenomenal. But remember what Jesus said, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus had said to them, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. They were His witnesses in Jerusalem. All the way through the first seven chapters of Acts. That's, by the way, part one of the book of Acts. Acts 1 through 7 in Jerusalem. Part two, which we are now into, chapters 8 through 12, is in all Judea and Samaria. Just as Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's part three of the book of Acts, chapter 13 through 28. We see the progression of the prophecy of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. Stephen was the grain of wheat that fell. Stephen was the grain that the Lord would use to scatter the seed of the Word of God throughout all Judea and Samaria, something that the apostles and the burgeoning church had not yet done on their own. They were still holding it really close to the vest. They were like a church who grew and was happy to grow. Moved out of a barn into a building. Was thankful for the number of people showing up and saying, Hey, look at this. This is so cool. We were 20 people 12 years ago. And now we're, I don't know, three, 400 people. Whatever the number is, I don't really care. It's like a church saying, Yeah, that's cool. It's like the church in Jerusalem. What about Judea and Samaria? What about Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island? What about the remotest parts of the earth. What's it going to take? Anybody uncomfortable with that question? The Lord caused a grain of wheat to fall and the gospel exploded. And Stephen's legacy, Stephen's legacy is great indeed. But, in my opinion, the greatest impact of this grain of wheat, of this seed, was cultivated in the soil of the heart of one man, Saul. Saul. Verse 58 of chapter 7. says that they laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul witnessed the execution, the murder of Stephen, approved of it, and it would haunt him the rest of his life. It would haunt him, I believe, until he gave his life to Jesus. And then after that, it would be a reminder to him that one day he was going to get to be face to face with Stephen and say, Bro, your faith changed my life. And because Saul's life was changed, all of history was impacted. Verse 60. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse... uh, 3 of chapter 8, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging them off, men and women, he would put them into prison. But now, verse 60, that's right, verse 60 says, Stephen prays, note this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In Saul, God answered that prayer. Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of those gathered there. Had God not forgiven Saul, Saul would not have become Paul. Augustine one time rightly said, if Stephen had not prayed for forgiveness, the church would not have Paul. The true legacy of Stephen was not that the church spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, it was that the church spread to the remotest parts of the earth through a man named Paul. That is Stephen's legacy. No doubt all that happened affected Paul deeply. And as a matter of fact, right here at the beginning of chapter 8, and it's marvelous, Paul, Saul is in the dugout. He doesn't even know it. He's going to go up to bat. 
He doesn't even know. He's dragging off Christians right and left to throw them into prison. God's already got him in the dugout. He's going to be in the game. He will be yet another particle in the atom of the church. Though he's completely clueless to it at this point. But note this. Paul is the first one in Scripture, the only one really, to apply the word martyr to Stephen. Acts chapter 22, verse 20. Paul is speaking and he said, When the blood of your witness, Marturos, when the blood of thy martyr, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Paul is the one who calls out Stephen as thy martyr, thy witness. It so deeply affected Paul that he himself died a martyr's death, beheaded in Rome. And he had seen Stephen do it. What Was it because of Stephen that Saul, who became Paul, ultimately would die a martyr's death? No, it was because of the one Stephen knew so well, Jesus. It was because Stephen very simply introduced Saul to Jesus. How did he introduce Saul to Jesus? By emulating Jesus in life, death, and legacy. This man looks so much like Jesus. He would be used, I believe, of God to draw Saul to Jesus. And listen to this. I'll just read it to you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul said, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, listen, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and being conformed to His death. Just like Stephen was conformed to His death. In order, Paul says, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Stephen's life, his brief life, his brutal death, his bold legacy conformed to Jesus. That's all he did. He wasn't in training for receiving stones. He wasn't preparing to be killed on that day. He didn't have a last meal with his friends the night before. Stephen simply lived Jesus. And so did Paul. So will Paul. And both men's lives can be summed up simply by saying they knew Jesus. And I would add, they sought only His approval. How do you apply a teaching like this? What's the application for us to take home and talk about over lunch at Island Cafe? What do you do with a teaching about martyrdom? About conforming yourself even to His death? What are you saying, Rick? Are you preparing us for martyrdom? Yes, I am. Absolutely. Because those who have died for the truth were not made martyrs by their dying. They died because they were already martyrs. Already witnesses. The application very simply of this teaching this morning is God is calling you to be a martyros. To be a witness. And a witness is concerned first and foremost with the approval of His God and Savior Jesus Christ. A witness is one who stands up even in the face of a growing culture that is opposed to Christianity and says, I will not bend the knee to culture. I bend the knee only to Christ Jesus. And if you find my faith offensive, I'm sorry. The world finds the cross offensive. If you find my clinging to my Bible upsetting, I'm sorry. I will yet cling to my Bible. If you find my faith 
intolerant. What is intolerant to me is anybody going to hell. The Lord is calling on His church and He is calling out this generation to stand up. Not to waffle. Not to give in to culture. Not to say, oh well, whatever, live and let live. That has gotten us into the mess that we're in right now. He's calling us to stand on the truth of His Word. And to seek Oh, to seek the approval of Jesus. Stephen got it, didn't he? Jesus standing up. Jesus saying, Stephen, come on. I'm proud of you, Stephen. Standing at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Jesus was waiting for Stephen to come home. Man, if I ever see any vision of heaven, that's the one that's worth seeing. And Jesus stands up for his witnesses. He is so proud of them. He so approves of them. Marturos. Witnesses.